Well, beloved listeners, in 1968, the ABC Boyer Lectures were presented by anthropologist W.E.H. Stanner. As he explained the idea that Australia has a, a long history of silence on the matter of the frontier wars and that this silence should be dismantled. In total agreement, we spoke recently to Rachel Perkins about her heartbreaking series, The Australian Wars, that exposed the many battles fought on this soil between the First Peoples and the British colonists. And while uh, Rachel's series is an example of the great Australian silence being broken, tonight we look at how and why this silence began. And could the voice to Parliament and the truth-telling that has already started in Victoria finally see the silence dismantled? This year, a new book award was established by the National Press Club. It is awarded to the Political Book of the Year, and the inaugural award went to my next guest, Dean Ashington. It's called Telling Tenants' Story, The Strange Career of the Great Australian Silence, and it's published by Black Ink. Now, Dean has been a journo, a policy advisor and academic over his long life, but as Dean and I are fellow octogenarians, and this is his first book, I must begin by A, congratulating him, and B, giving him a koala stamp. Incidentally, the book comes highly recommended by Laura Tingle. Dean, welcome to the little program, and congratulations. Thank you, Philip. Before we get on to the career of the Great Australian Silence, would you take me to the town of Tennant Creek, and tell us of your connection to it. I first went to Tennant Creek in 1952. I was one of three sons of the new headmaster of the two-teacher primary school. It was then a town of about 600 people, uh, about a third of the way between Alice Springs and Darwin on the main highway. And when we were there something that struck me more and more forcibly as I got older was that the town was with one exception, namely the night soil man and his family, uh, entirely white, but we were very conscious of the fact of people who weren't. They lived on the mission, which was well to the north of the town, uh, in what was a full-on policed and regulated apartheid regime. Tennant Creek then was a predominantly mining town and it had been established about, uh, well, in the early 1930s, which was only 20 years before we were there. And uh, the Bill Stanner, who you mentioned at the outset, was present at the foundation. What were your personal contacts with the uh, Indigenous community, with the uh, Waramangu? Just about none. The only real exception to that was that the three sons, the Aboriginal wife and the night soil man, came to the school. And they were a bit of a mystery because I didn't know why they were allowed into the town when all the other Aborigines were not. 
we did see them quite often and had nothing to do with them. Particularly, we saw our age mates at the film night every Saturday night at the Open Air Picture Theatre. And I sometimes saw them on other occasions as well, including uh, I, I would from time to time see old men sitting cross-legged on the veranda of the store where my mother worked behind the counter. Uh, I occasionally saw Aboriginal men in the back of a cattle truck uh, driving by and I had a distinct memory of having seen some Aboriginal people occasionally camped in the Spinifex out the back of our place. So it was um, only at university that you started to learn something of the community that had been living all around you. At university, my learning about those people and uh, the rest of the Aboriginal peoples around Australia was limited entirely to uh, extracurricular activities. Uh, that was the time in the early 1960s when the very first kind of stirrings of protest uh, against the treatment of Aboriginal people were beginning. Although I should correct myself there and say actually the first uh, can be traced a long way back. Uh, there was something like what we experienced in the 60s, also in the 1930s, but this was the first one that blossomed and grew. But on the curriculum, I was a history student, uh, nothing. Now, you decided to go back to Tennant Creek recently. Why, after all these years? Good question. <laughs> Look, I'm still not quite sure. Uh, I hadn't gone back for 50 years, and in fact, for most of those 50 years, I was very determined not to go back. I hadn't liked being there as a kid. I hadn't liked what I learned about uh, what it had subsequently become, which is in many ways Australia's most notorious dystopia, and I didn't have any particular wish to see that. But uh, Again, as you would know, as you get older, um, you start to wonder about things which you've taken for granted completely uh, in your earlier days. And I started to wonder, as I mentioned a moment ago, about that apartheid regime in Tennant Creek. I, I simply couldn't understand uh, where it had come from, uh, how it operated or where it had gone. Uh, and I didn't know anything either about the town itself. So I decided that if I was going to find out about them, I would have to go back, and that turned out to be correct. Now, from the start, the British colonisers were reluctant to officially declare war on the Indigenous population. Did this reluctance start the silence, Dean? Uh, it was, in a way, yes, the, the, uh, an early example of the silence. They were kidding themselves. On the one hand, Philip's instructions enjoined him to live in peace and amity with the locals. On the other hand, he was expected to become self-supporting and hand out land grants. Uh, so they were having two bob each row right from the start, and that was a problem for consciences which then were uh, quite acute, both uh, from... Uh, Protestant Christianity and from the Enlightenment. Well, and I'm glad you've mentioned the period of the Enlightenment because, of course, here's Britain opposed to slavery and trying to come to terms with an Indigenous population so far away. 
that became almost a crisis in relations between the headquarters of the empire in London on the one hand and the colonies in Australia on the other, particularly by the time you get to the 1830s, which is, what, 50 years after the first of the colonies was established. Uh, the colonial office in London was dominated by that conscience and it kept on sending out instructions out to its um, local men, the governors, uh, to treat uh, Aboriginal people uh, well and kindly and to not perpetuate the cruelties that they were beginning to hear about. But the problem was that the local governors couldn't control the settlers during the 1820s and 1830s particularly, the land boom tur turned into a uh, kind of uh, one uh, violent encounter after another. And that was something about which silence was maintained for reasons of guilt and also for reasons of material self-interest. Now, you talk about uh, some of the early anthropologists coming through Tennant Creek the likes of Gillen and Spencer, and say that they contributed to the Great Silence. They, they made a very distinctive contribution. Up until that time, uh, the silence was literally buttoned lips, just not saying things. It was uh, hiding or destroying records. It was speaking in terms of euphemism, it was sentimentalising Aboriginal people, it had a whole lot of different forms. What Spencer and Gillen did was to construct a quite new form and that was where anthropology as a formal academic discipline started. Its essential logic was to look beyond or over all the encounters between black and white to the time before the white arrived. So its idea was to reconstruct the life that had been led uh, before the white fellows arrived. And in the case of Spencer and Gillen, the struggle to have that retro view dominate experience and knowledge uh, was uh, waged uh, between Gillen and Spencer themselves and particularly within poor old Gillen. Who, well, you, you say that Spencer had a very bad influence on Gillen. He, essentially, yes. Gillen had been in Central Australia for around 20 years or more uh, as uh, working on the telegraph line, uh, telegraph operator uh, and then station master um, for those 20 years when Spencer turned up along with a number of others in the Horn Scientific Expedition. And Gillen during that time had passed from a fascination with the Aborigines to disgust with the way in which they were treated by whites, even to the point where at one st stage in his role as uh, a sub um, protector of Aborigines, he caused a, a notorious cop to be charged with murder. But when Spencer came along, Spencer had his head full of evolutionary theory uh, and was interested in the genesis of humankind. And so after some struggles between the two of them, uh, it was that perspective that came to dominate 
and virtually eliminate the understanding that Gillen had formed about what was going on between black and white. And the uh, what we now call the frontier wars, uh, anthropology regarded as not anthropology at all. It was only interested in what was there before. And that became a very, very tough intellectual nut to crack and the hero of that struggle, apart from the Indigenous people themselves, was uh, was Bill Stanner. And, of course, Stanner coins the phrase, the great Australian silence. He also was the first to really understand how it worked and first to realise that the refusal to have the story of relation between two racial groups in a single field of life, as he put it, the refusal to have that story fully told was itself a crucial part of the Australian story. Now, Stanner's bait noir was, um, was Paul Hasluck, who was busy developing the policy of assimilation, which also contributes to the great Australian silence. In two ways, it tries to erase Aboriginal culture and skin colour. On the, the, the second of those, on the skin colour, <laughs> anthropology and government policy in, in turn uh, were, were in two minds. They couldn't work out whether interbreeding, as it was known, was going to be the solution or the, or the problem. Um, it could, maybe it would be the solution, they thought, because gradually the skin colour would fade uh, and the, uh, the problem would go away with that. Uh, on the other hand, there was a, a kind of panic in some quarters during the 1930s about the increasing number of so-called crossbreeds uh, who were polluting the purity of the white Australian nation. And much later, Lang Hancock would see these so-called crossbreeds as the problem. So let's play a grab from Stanner's Boyer Lecture in 1968. I hardly think that what I have called the Great Australian Silence will survive the research that is now in course. Our universities and research institutes are full of young people who are working actively to end it. The Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies and the Social Science Research Council of Australia have both promoted studies which will bring the historical and the contemporary dimensions together and will assuredly persuade scholars to renovate their categories of understanding. If we could have done this in the 1920s and 1930s, perhaps we should not have had to wait until the middle 1950s to see any real product of the new positive policy. For example, the effort to preserve the Aborigines within inviolable reserves was the last ditch of an older policy. We were then beyond the last ditch. I do not recall that we asked ourselves at all clearly what comes after a policy which by definition is one of last resort. His hopes of dismantling the Great Silence were not realised, were they, Dean? They still haven't been, but his boyers were themselves a reflection of the early challenges to it, and they have played a crucial part in guiding it ever since. Um, the, I think Stanner was the first to grasp the significance of the silence, but he had, his understanding of the silence, I think, was still limited. He saw it really as being the things that we had in our heads, just bad ideas and all that needed was knowledge and that, that 
the academic discipline of history would do what the academic discipline of anthropology had failed to do. But in fact, of course, the silence was very deeply embedded in Australian institutions uh, and in Australian interests. So it was, was right at the middle of a lot of Australian law. It was in the middle of disciplines like anthropology and uh, history. It was in school curricula. It was in museums. It was in monuments and memorials. It was all over the place. And so it didn't so much have to be broken as he thought, it had to be dismantled. And that has turned out to be a very long and difficult task. And not least because a lot of people, including particularly the miners and pastoralists, haven't wanted it. My old friend and mentor, Nugget Coombs, tried. And uh, then, of course, there were the Whitlam years, but Gough wasn't around long enough to do a lot. And any number of historians like Henry Reynolds have fought the good fight. The the historians have, in the nature of the discipline, been led the abolition of the silence in the sense that we now know the story of relations between those two racial groups in extraordinary detail. But, of course, they have only limited capacity to change or those institutional strongholds that I was talking about. There, the law has gone some of the way, uh, certainly a long way from where it was uh, back in the days when terra nullius was uh, a received truth. There has been considerable progress in museums and so on, but there's also still a long way to go, well, in my view, in the law and also in the institutions of memory and commemoration, particularly in what you might call official public history. And that's something, by the way, uh, which Rachel Perkins' fantastic trilogy puts right at the centre of the story. The drive you did recently to Tennant Creek remind you of how little recognition of the frontier wars there are in most of the towns you came across. The I set out to go back to Tennant, wanting to find out about the history of Tennant Creek and the history of relations between black and white. Um, and I decided I'd go on, on the old road, which has since been replaced. Um, it the, follows the route of the, the, the old railway, the GAN, uh, and I didn't get very far along that trip. In fact, lunchtime on the first day before I tripped over what became the second and main story of my book um, uh, in a town called Melrose where we stopped to have lunch, uh, which was sandwiches in a park. And in the park there was a billboard which was called Paradise Square and it listed the names of the dead in the old Melrose Cemetery. And when I looked at those, I, it was quite fascinating in terms of, you know, listing the occupations and how long people lived and children and so forth and so on. Um, but after a bit, I thought, there's something the matter with this, and I couldn't figure out what it was, and then I realised, now, where are the Aboriginal dead? Um, Melrose, uh, in the period of the uh, at which this uh, the cemetery was had been established, was at the frontier, 
Uh, it, uh, I, I discovered that it was in fact the police headquarters and it essentially was the, the um, headquarters at that stage uh, of the invasion. And the further I drove uh, on from Melrose, the more I became uh, struck and then infuriated by what I would now think of as parts of the silence. Well, what, what we need is, is support for local history societies to work with Indigenous groups to tell a more complete history. Dean, thank you very much for coming on and congratulations on your, what you've done. We've been talking to Dean Ashenden, author of Telling Tenants a Story, The Strange Career of the Great Australian Silence, published by Black Ink. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.